All right, back on the Young Turks. Um, so uh, we've got a couple of great interviews for you guys. Uh, the second interview is going to be from a guy who is a CEO and said minimum wage at my company is going to be seventy thousand dollars a year. Wow. Uh, so uh, we'll talk to him next. And in the post game, that's just for members. Uh, we have a breakdown of John Bolton's salary. How much does he make, and where does he get his money from? Fascinating. Uh, also fascinating quotes for, about Marianne Williamson uh, and facts, and one from Candace Owens. And then I went to a quinceanera, so a little fun personal story uh, from over the weekend. And I'll talk to you about that as well. So that's all for the members, tyt.com slash join to become a member and get all of that. Okay, now let me go to my first guest. Joining me now is Peter Melman, former executive producer of Seinfeld, one of the head writers and producers there, obviously. He's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times. NPR, Esquire, and he's now the author of a new book, Hashtag Me As Well. Uh, Peter, welcome back to the Young Turks, how are you doing? Great, it's good to see you again. Good to see you, brother. Um, so uh, first, uh, let's start out with what's the book about? The book is about a Pulitzer Prize winning sports writer who's about 60 years old, incredible reputation, and he makes one questionably off color joke about um, a very soft player in the NBA, you know, somebody who doesn't like body contact and things like that. And he makes a little, the guy gets hurt and he makes a little joke about how long is a guy usually out for a hysterectomy? Mm -hmm. Well, the joke goes viral and he he is caught in the middle of the, um, of the whole Me Too movement. It took place, it takes place in one day, 24 hours last summer. So Peter, um these are interesting waters that you chose to swim in <laughs> or swim in. Uh, so let's wade into them a little bit. Um, I remember when Fred Taylor um, fumbled the ball when he got hurt. Uh, he's a former running back for the Jacksonville Jaguars. So this is, I'm dating myself, but that's part of the point of this exercise. So I don't remember if it was about 15 years ago or so. And every guy I knew made jokes along the lines of what you're talking about and what you write in the book about. Um, now that would be totally unacceptable. So is it right that it's unacceptable? What does it mean for it to be unacceptable? Was it right back in the day when it was acceptable? Boy, those are the tough questions, which is why you have the job you have. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I agree. You know, the funny thing is in a way, I'm not exploring so much the right and the wrong of it. You know, what, what obsesses me is, you know, about the whole Me Too movement is these people who got caught up in it, who were, you know, justifiably, you know, take caught up in it. And, you know, like what their life is like while they're in the middle of it. You know, I'm, I'm just fascinated by, um, you know, the idea of can, can Matt Lauer go out to breakfast? Um, you know, can, can Harvey Weinstein, you know, go out to lunch with his daughter? You know, those things are what really obsesses me about it. And plus the fact that, you know, it hits into some of my other obsessions, which are, you know, sports and, you know, good journalism. Those are the uh, things that are really important to me. And sexual politics is always kind of fascinating. So yeah, it's dangerous waters to um, be treading in, but you know, it's very hard to come up with any kind of mass conclusion about whether this is right or not. You know, I come from a comedy background, 
So, you know, I naturally feel that jokes should be okay, you know, as long as they're not unbelievably tasteless. But um, it's a very dangerous time to be, uh, to have any kind of a sense of humor. Yeah, okay, well, let's talk about that. So, uh, yes, in terms of the content, uh, we talk about it on the Young Turks and we take risks by telling folks our real opinions. Uh, and and then you get criticized on all sides, and it's okay. So um, you know, and I, I don't think it's at all controversial uh, to say that Harvey Weinstein is a monster. Everybody agrees to that, right? And so it's a little fascinating to see. Yeah, I guess does he go to the bagel shop with his daughter? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And what is the reaction he gets when he goes there? But to me, the more interesting question is the Matt Lowers of the world. Where are they done forever? Uh, is that because Harvey? If allegedly rape people and and did monstrous things, right? Uh, whereas, and even this conversation, when you say whereas and then fill in the blank, there are going to people who, who say, no, there is no whereas. There is, I was going to say, whereas Aziz Ansari. And I think there is a whereas. And I think that was case was far more complicated. And, and so. And Al Franken. Now, that doesn't mean that, let's take Al Franken, for example, that he never did anything wrong in his life. It could be that he did some things wrong, and it could be that they set him up anyway. Both of those things could be true. So the minute that that story came out, and it came from a conservative talk show, I was like, buyer beware, right? But it doesn't mean he didn't do other things, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the substance of it. But Let's talk about it in terms of the comedy world, which is where you're from, right? So now there's also complications there, Peter. Uh, one is, I think too many comics are now complaining too much about this issue. Right. Right. Just go out and do a set, do a set, see if the crowd likes it, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I can see how it would be chilling, especially for comics. So I'm kind of <laughs> split on it. What, what What's your take and what do you think the the, the the take of the comic world is, are they too burned by it? Are they too bitter about it? I don't know, your thoughts. I think there's a lot of disingenuousness about that. You know, a lot of comics are complaining about, you know, they wouldn't go to a college campus when, you know, they're all their other shows are, you know, are $300 a ticket, which they can't charge in a college campus. That said, there's a certain amount of validity to what they're saying. And, you know, and the funny thing is, you never know how people are going to take a joke. You know, I've been toying around with stand up for the last three years, um, in case you thought that, you know, 58 is too late to start stand up. That's when I started. <laughs> no, I love that. Uh -huh. But, you know, um, I keep toying around with playing with the edges. Not that I have anything at stake. So I just, do it on an experimental level, and you just never know. Sometimes the audience is going to laugh hysterically, and sometimes, you know, they they're going to go silent, or they're even going to hiss. Um, I think, by nature, a stand-up comic or anybody involved in comedy has to be brave enough to go forward and do it anyway. You know, what's the point if you're not going to take any chances? And the great comedians out there, you know, now they do it. You know, I mean, Sarah Silverman is unbelievably fearless. 
you know, and I think Gerard Carmichael is, you know, fearless. And so, um, you know, I think the really successful comics are the ones who take the chances. So let me ask you a couple of uh, further tough questions because all of these are tough. So uh, obviously you guys had uh, a comic on Seinfeld uh, who got in a lot of trouble uh, for shouting the N word on a a number of occasions during a set. So I mean, I'm naturally curious, you're curious, I'm curious. So uh, you know, what happens? Do do, uh, writers on that show, do people who worked on that show, do actors on that show put an arm around them and say it's gonna be all right and we'll you know get you through it? Or they say, I don't want anything to do with this guy, what happens? I think uh, we were so close, all of us at Seinfeld, that everybody kind of puts their arm around Michael and says, you know, we know what kind of person you are. And, um, you know, God knows where that came from. But, you know, my theory is that, you know, Michael isn't the least bit racist, but, you know, he's kind of a historian of comedy. And he kind of went back to, you know, like Lenny Bruce type material at a time when you can't do that. And um, look, he made a serious misjudgment, but you know, we kind of, st- we, we all kind of like stood by him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, what he shouted was terrible and, and it, it definitely crossed the line. But if you know him personally and you think he's not racist, well, you're in an incredibly tough spot. You back your friend who you genuinely believe is not racist. Or, but if you do so, you're offending a lot of people who think that's just the most unacceptable thing I've ever heard. And how could you? So I don't know that there are any answers to this. So then you write a book called hashtag Me as Well, which is obviously a play off of Me Too. I don't know if you're allowed to joke about Me Too. So have you gotten blowback on this? Not yet. <laughs> uh, could be any minute now. <laughs> um, you know, I um, it's it's relatively new. You know, it's it's out on Amazon and it's re- and it's relatively new. So, you know, I think the jury is still out on that. But um, you know, it gets to the point where you know I could write the most benign kind of humor piece for the Huffington Post or the L.A. Times op-ed page. You know, purely jokes, purely funny, and get the most vicious responses imaginable. Like you can't even anticipate what the responses are going to be. So, you know, you just got to put it out there, what you think is funny, interesting, entertaining. And, you know, that's all you can do. You can't really anticipate what the blowback or whether there will be blowback is going to be. Right, last thing, Peter, because I I find it endlessly fascinating. So did you run this by anyone, right? (laughs) Did you go talk to female friends? I know it's a funny thing to say, uh, political figures, etc. Or or go, nah, nah, damn it to hell, I wanna write this. I wrote it and I'm done with it. No, I sat down, I just wrote it. You know, it took six months, eight months and uh, no, I, 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 you know, I'm kind of happy that I was pretty fearless about this, and um, you know, I, I have to say that the majority of women I've talked to about the book, you know, 
they're kind of like saying, mm, you know, I'm a little over this whole Me Too thing. You know, like maybe it's gone too far. I think the question we all have is, you know, has this gone to an extreme and is it going to go back eventually or, you know, ease off a little? And yeah. uh, frankly, I don't see it. I, I, I actually think that, you know, the momentum is continuing in, in, that, in a very dangerous direction. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Look, I'll end on my personal opinion, which is that I think that the movement was revolutionary, incredibly necessary, and the overwhelming majority of the movement has been enormously positive. Any Absolutely. movement can go overboard. And almost every movement does at some point. So then, then you begin a, a balancing act. Uh, I don't know if we're at the balancing act, right? And, and honest people can disagree about that. Uh, but I do know that the overwhelming majority of the movement was fantastic. Now we're at the point where we're debating whether the pendulum has swung too far. But given where the pendulum was, it's still a good, a very good day in America that it's, we're here. Yeah, it's all been a positive thing, really. I mean, you know, there, I don't, I can't imagine that there's going to be another Harvey Weinstein, you know, as far as doing what he did, you know, in in a, such a public and powerful position, you know. So if that's the case, then the whole movement was more than worth it. All right, uh, Peter Melman, uh, one of the. Uh, Minds behind Seinfeld, uh, and if you want to see a longer interview that I did with Peter, uh, go to uh, YouTube.com/slash/tytconversation, where we talked about uh, how he got to be on Seinfeld, etc. It's a great, fascinating story, and the book is called Hashtag Me As Well. Uh, Peter, thanks for joining us again. So I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure always. Take care. All right, you too. All right, when we come back, uh, CEO of a company that said, "Yeah, we're going to have a minimum wage here, and it's going to be seventy thousand dollars at my company." Fascinating. Uh, why that number? Why did he decide to do that? We'll talk to you when we come back. All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, the interesting guests never end. Uh, let's go to the next one. Joining me now is Dan Price. He's the founder and CEO of Gravity Payments, and he has done something fascinating and fantastic. Uh, he set minimum wages at his company at $70,000 a year. Uh, now, he had done that earlier with a company that he owns in Seattle. He just did it with a company in Idaho, where that is a monster number. Uh, so I'm fascinated by the fallout from it and, and, and the, honestly, the business part of it as well. So Dan, welcome to the Young Turks. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, let's start at the beginning. Where did you even get the idea to do this and why $70,000? Yeah, so um, uh, I was on a hike with a friend of mine. Um, her name's Valerie, and she had just had a huge. Um, well, for her, was a huge rent increase. Her rent was increased by two hundred dollars a month. And you know, I was young and and wealthy and doing well. I, I grew up in Idaho in a conservative Christian family home, but I was making a million dollars a year. I built my own business. And uh, seeing how it was like for her to actually absorb a $200 rent increase and how it was completely disruptive of her life, uh, just, um, you know, it, it, it taught me about a blind spot that I had. And I had read a little bit about Angus Deaton and Daniel Kahneman, how they had done the study for Princeton about how money makes your life better up until a certain point, uh, after which it does not. And I was clearly way above that point, but the people that were working with me were quite a bit below it. And so 
you know, that kind of clued in uh, to me that that money would be more valuable in the hands of other people than it would be, you know, me being very wealthy, getting even more wealthy. That wouldn't really do anybody, myself included, any good. I thought that $70,000 number sounded familiar. Yeah, it's well, it's from that I study. I wrong though, so <laughs> I misremembered it. It was actually 75,000. That's so funny, I was thinking, wasn't it 75? Right. Yeah. yeah, and then and then uh, there's a CBS show called the The Good Wife. I think it got canceled, but Miss America, Vanessa Williams played me on that show one season, and she got the right number. She she did seventy five thousand for her workers, so they uh, they I guess got it right. Okay, and so uh, well before we get to the other people's reactions, so you were making one point one million dollars. You right. brought yourself down to seventy thousand dollars. Yes. Uh, now, I assume that since you own the company, that you've got equity and stock and stuff, and so you're okay otherwise. But, but did that make a big difference in your life? You know, I had shaved up a little bit, um, but with all the fallout that that you mentioned that we could get into a little bit, and also just all the kind of growth that we were absorbing, I had put some money aside that I uh, temporarily had to put most of that money back into the company. Uh, the company has subsequently really thrived, and and uh, we've had some great results. So that money has come back to me now, and so I, I have a little bit of savings from earlier in my career. But it, it made a change in my lifestyle. You know, I, I had a a full time like house like personal assistant, and she was going back to medical school. So like I didn't like lay her off or fire her. That would have been horrible. But I didn't replace her either. And so you know, I went back to doing all my own chores and you know, kind of living a normal life, but. I mean, it was good. It was fun. It was so worth it. You know, the it, my life maybe got like a half of one percent worse, taking away the impact of all the people around me. But all their lives got better. And when you think about the positivity, the camaraderie, the the way of like collaborating that you know as a as a founder of a company, you know, is so important. With all of those things, you know, being enhanced so much. My life got way better, and uh, the things that I sacrificed were worth it. So, are there any days where you regret it? Uh, I mean, there are days where I get tired, and there are days where I think, wow, like, you know, being so vocal about it is tough, or, you know, it, it's like a challenging circumstance. I wouldn't say there are any days where I out and out regret it, but there are days that I understand more about the costs that are involved. Um, well, let me give you a concrete example. Prior to 70K, we had between zero and two babies born per year at Gravity. Since 70K, it's been only four years, we're at like 35 babies being born at the company. So. There's so many facts like that that have come out about how life changes once you have a more equal sense of pay and resources that it would be completely impossible for me to ever regret it. Wow, I did not see that coming as a consequence. It was, it was amazing. The other thing that happened was we went from zero first time homeowners to like a half a dozen first time homeowners every year. Uh, a lot of the blowback that people said everyone would squander the money and be stupid, but we actually found that a third of the uh, company got almost completely out of debt, two thirds paid down debt, um, and our voluntary savings rate through our company 401k program tripled. Um, so you know, it was—I mean, it was life-changing for all of us. 
And I think one of the things that we hopefully are learning together as a society is uh, what strengthens one of us strengthens all of us. And that approach is kind of the way forward. And so in spite of the fact that, yeah, maybe I like am not as wealthy as I otherwise would be, my humanity, my vitality, the things that are really important to me in life are so much better. And, and, and again, purely speaking from a selfish standpoint in terms of like how much I enjoy my life, how happy I am, how stressed I am, how much I smile. I mean, my life is so much better because of something like this. Dan, it's just an amazing story, man. Look, it's sight unseen on anything else that Gravity Payments does. Everybody go use Gravity Payments. <laughs> uh, okay, so, uh, but now let's talk about the downsides. Um, so um, one that could be expected was if you have other shareholders, them going, whoa, what are you doing paying employees more? Now in your case, it was your brother. So yeah. what happened there? So um, I got sued. Um, uh, the technical term that was used was basically minority shareholder oppression, but essentially it was like you didn't fully consult and this is unusual and this isn't the way business is being done. and. You know, there were various legal arguments being put forward of like, is it actually illegal to do something that's not purely like in the shareholder's interest? And, you know, the the legal theory of that, there just weren't facts there to try it because, you know, it was so early and we were experiencing some business benefit from it. And so it was it was hard to say that it was like purely bad. But those were some of the legal theories. And uh, I mean, I did have some sleepless nights wondering, you know, if it would found to be illegal, what that would mean for me. And I actually, um, uh, you know, did face the, the reality that if I lost that lawsuit, then I would lose control of the company probably forever. Did you say minority shareholder oppression? Yeah, that's the technical term. Um, it, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's basically the term of like, just because you're a controlling shareholder of a company, you can't do something that's good for you and bad for everybody else. Right, now the one thing that really helps your cause there is that it wasn't necessarily good for you. So, and so obviously it wasn't just done for greed or anything like that, quite the opposite. I was just amused by the name. I understand that it's a coincidence and it's just a legal term of art, etc. But yeah. you're paying your employees more, well then the shareholders are being oppressed. Right. <laughs> and it is kind of symbolic of how a lot of the business community uh, treats uh, the thought of paying employees better. So are you and your brother okay now or no? Uh, on a personal level, you know, we still got some work to do. Um, on a business level, um, you know, after uh, the lawsuit uh, was dismissed and all that got sorted out, you know, he kind of wanted a, an exit. And so we were able to provide an exit. He was nice to, you know, let me pay him over time and all those sorts of things. So from a business standpoint, I would say we're okay. From a personal standpoint, we got a little bit of ways to go. Got you. Um, and it's funny, like the minute you turn the equation around and you're decent to other human beings, people charge you with being selfish because it makes you feel good. Then why don't more people do it? <laughs> right? It's really nice, and I think it's a really important thing that we need to figure out as a path forward because, you know, we have uh, really incredible resources right now, but they're being trapped at in the hands of just so so few people. And one of the things that really didn't work out from the whole 70k thing, in spite of the fact it was great for our business, it was great for all the employees, it was great for me selfishly. 
But, you know, in those four years, income inequality, you know, is probably you can almost add an extra zero to how much worse it got in that time. And, you know, growing up as a conservative Christian in a family where my dad, you know, like always wanted to be in business, wanted me as his kid to be in business. You know, I always thought business and free markets were the solution. But unfortunately, you know, I, I, I went out, I've been promoting this, I've been speaking to literally thousands and thousands of CEOs every single year. And a lot of them have adopted it and the ones that have, it's worked great and their companies have prospered. But the fact is most of them have not adopted it. And so, you know, while it's been great for us, it really hasn't done a whole lot for somebody that works at a company that doesn't think this way. Okay, um, so, but the one that really threw me for a loop was, some of your employees in Seattle were mad at you. Why? Yeah, so my best understanding of it, you know, we had a long couple long conversations. I'm still in touch with all of them. Couple left and um, you know, there was a thought of like basically, wait, wait, I wasn't given this starting pay. I had to work my way up from $25,000 to now I'm finally at 80 and now you're going to take everybody up to 70 and yeah, maybe you're going to bump me to like 83 or 84, but you're taking them from 30 or 35 to 70. Uh, you know, that's not really fair. And I could understand that because, you know, that's kind of the way the system has been structured. That's the way it's been set up. Um, but you know, it was, it was kind of one of those things where we were choosing to lean into everybody having their needs met and having enough to be able to live their lives and not necessarily trying to like, make sure that, you know, for every dollar that this person got that really needed it, this person that didn't need the money was also going to get $3 or $5 or $10. And I think that's a big trend right now where, you know, you see the people on top, the, the billionaires and the millionaires are actually some of the people that complain the most about how hard life is, how they're being unfairly treated. And, you know, I believe that the system doesn't serve them because the same way it didn't serve me. But, you know, the answer is for those of us who have more power and more privilege to be willing to give some of it up, for the greater good because we benefit from that structural, you know, societal change that makes all of our lives better. Yeah, it, it is of course disappointing to see folks complain about others getting the minimum, uh, but but unfortunately not surprising. All right, last thing, uh, because it's important, uh, your company in Idaho, you bought a, another one and, and you also did it in Idaho where the standard of living is even lower uh, in terms of uh, prices. So that's a huge boon to them. Some of them are call centers that you could normally outsource at like two bucks an hour and you're paying them $70,000. So one, it took you longer to do it there, why? And then two, can you still remain profitable when you're paying your employees so much more than the industry average? So there's a little more to the story. So we implemented our 70K minimum wage uh, in 2015. And then uh, it was so successful that a year or two later, we bought a company in Idaho that had, call it maybe 45 employees. And of the 45, uh, over half of the employees were making under $30,000 a year. And, uh, you know, the owner was kind of a 
he was a, a baby boomer who believed in controlling things very tightly and controlling expenses. And look, the guy's got a great heart. He's a wonderful person, but it was really hard for him to give raises because he had that kind of depression era type mentality. I mean, he's not that old, but whether he got it from his parents or grandparents or whatnot, you get the idea. Mm -hmm. And so we bought this company and immediately after buying it, we changed the minimum wage from about 24,000 where it was to 40,000 instantly. Um, and now we're scaling up. We changed it to 50. Now we're scaling up 5,000 a year for the next four years to get to 70. So it was basically a matter of, okay, we're buying this company. You know, the people that work at the company are really excited to join the team. Honestly, their expectations were very modest. They were very nice to us. They weren't demanding. And they understood that, you know, we wanted to get them there. And so uh, it was not only successful enough to do that, but I'm actually sitting here at our brand new office. It's like a class office space, like in Boise, Idaho. And, you know, if anybody wants to, as Rush Limbaugh and Fox News set, said, say that our employees are going to be on the bread lines because this is such a horrible program, I want them to come out here in Idaho and look at the people, look at the office and see how we're out competing, out succeeding and think about how if we start to put systemic solutions in place through our political processes and pass laws that will allow us to be more equal, we will all thrive, we'll all succeed as a society. And despite what a lot of people are saying, we're not gonna be in a situation where we can't compete with other countries. We're gonna be stronger because we're gonna be more together and we're all gonna be on the same team. Dan, I love what you're saying. Uh, just uh, caution you, don't invite any Fox News people to your place. <laughs> it's a bad I, idea. Know, I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh from 10 to 1 every day. Um, I love Republicans. I love conservatives. I want to bring us all into the fold and figure out a way that we can see the benefit of this together. Because, you know, the, the things that we're doing, the value we're adding as, as a company, to each other's lives, it benefits Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, progressives, whatever labels we wanna put, it benefits everybody. And if we wanna try to reunify and persuade people to all be in this together, I think we need to find a way to have a benefit for each other. And I think this is an example. Of course, it's small, I get that, but I hope that it's proof that the bigger one will work. All right, Dan, in fact, I'm I'm th working on a book and that's the last chapter, what you just said right there. So uh, Dan, you're amazing. Uh, the uh, company in Idaho is called Charge It Pro. Uh, well, so, so it's now just gravity payments and just for your audience. So any small business, the original thing of gravity and Charge It Pro was if you have a small business and you're paying too much on your payment processing, if you're being unfairly treated, we're, we're in it for the little galler guy. But then our new business now is working with software companies to develop cloud software solutions to allow small businesses to compete with Amazon and Starbucks and all those. So any kind of software startup that's targeted to a small business, you know, we work with them and make sure to get that solution in the hands of small business owners. Because our idea is that the bigger and more powerful, the less likely to be interested in justice and the smaller and more independent, just the better, the more fun it's gonna be for all of us. All right, gravitypayments.com, Dan Price, American hero. Thank you, brother. Thanks. 
All right, uh, when we come back, just for the members, uh, we're gonna talk about John Bolton's salary. How much is it? Prepare to be depressed. Uh, where does he get it from? That's very important. Uh, speaking of funding, I wanna talk about Marianne Williamson's funding a little bit. Uh, we got a funny Candace Owens clip, and I went to a quinceanera. So a very full post game show for the members, tyt.com slash join to become a member. All right, we'll see you there.